0: What will make you change? For most of us, it is not. Self-help books, courses at the Learning Annex. We are immune to any number of long, sincere talks with our friends about the problems that do not go away. We are immune to resolutions made at the last minute of the last hour of each December 31st. Consider the story of Evan Harris. She didn't like her job. She wanted to leave her boyfriend. She was living in a city she didn't like.
1: I was well entrenched in my life um, and pretty much sleepwalking.
0: And weeks went by. And months went by. And then one day, she and a coworker were in the mailroom at the extremely low-level office jobs that they held. And there amongst the envelopes, stacks of envelopes everywhere, they started talking. And that's where it happened to Evan Harris. You know how sometimes the smallest thing can end up changing your entire life? You know, a casual comment by somebody you barely know. An ad you happen to spot in the newspaper. A chance encounter. One little moment. And, and later, when you look back, you realize, oh, that, that was it. That was the moment. That was the pivot point around which my entire life turned and spun and went into a totally different direction. And, you know, you don't get to choose. (laughs) You do not get to choose this pivotal moment. And sometimes, as anybody over a certain age can tell you, the pivotal moment can be kind of... It can be kind of stupid. In Evan Harris's case it was about as unlikely as they come.
1: We were doing some sort of menial labor. I w- she was doing a mailing, and I was f- putting some stuff in alphabetical order, and I said to her, shouldn't the letter Q be further toward the back of the alphabet?
0: That's it. <laughs> With the utterance of those words. Let me, let me just play this back for you, because cause these are words. Which changed
1: an adult human life. Here, here we go. Shouldn't the letter Q be further toward the back of the alphabet?
0: With those words, Evan Harris's life took a 180 degree turn. Welcome, WBEZ Chicago. This is your Radio Playhouse. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, Quitting. Stories of people who quit everything in their lives that they hated and what happened to them afterwards. Coming up, writers Sandra Tsinglo, Lisa Buscani, and others stay with us. So, Evan Harris and her friend and co worker Shelly Ross, they, uh, we're at this job and they started talking about the letter q and it was the kind of conversation you can only really have at a job that does not require total concentration you know so you're sorting mail you're frying burgers you're you're doing whatever you know and so they're talking about the letter q and again remember this is the pivotal conversation in a person's life they're talking about the letter q and they get to talking about where it should be in the alphabet and in their minds, Q does not belong in the middle of the alphabet where it is, you know, with the hoi polloi of the alphabet. You know, your M's, your N's, your P's, letters that will just join any word for the asking. N is in letters you don't even hear it. Damn, what's it, what's it doing in there? Q, in, in their mind, has more character. Q, in their mind, doesn't take anything off of anybody. It makes demands and it sees that they are met. What other letter has an adjunct, a bodyguard with it carried into every word? In their mind Q belongs at the end of the alphabet with your X's, your Y's, your Z's. Letters that do not care what anybody thinks of them and that don't just join up to any word. And Q of course is the first letter of the word quit. Can't spell quit without Q. At least on public radio, you can't. And Evan Harris and her friend Shelley Ross started talking about what it means to be able to quit something. You know, what are the qualities that you need? And they decided the qualities were that kind of fierce independence that, in fact, they saw in the letter Q.
1: And they talked about quitting for a long time that day. And... and... I, I Quitter Quarterly just came out of my mouth, really. I mean, it just it came out of my mouth. I mean, it really, it kind of came from heaven, you know? Kind of came from heaven, really. It just kind of lit down on me, and there it was, and that's how I saw it.
0: Quitter Quarterly. At that moment, Evan Harris and her friend Shelley Ross decided to publish a little zine, you know, a little Xerox thing, just a couple pages long, called Quitter Quarterly. And that changed Evan's life. Recently, I heard about the butter sculptures at the Minnesota State Fair. These are these big sculptures made entirely out of butter. And uh, often of, like, I think it's, uh, some, the way it was explained to me was that they're often of the, um, like, the, the queen for the day, that some teenage girl will be selected as the fair queen that day. And then her her bust will be done in butter. And it got me to thinking what if my muse had called me to work in butter? You know, what if my muse said, you will now represent the human form in butter? You know, what if your muse calls you to do something hokey and out of date like singing in coffee houses? Or, I mean, I don't even know. The point is, we cannot choose. Who we fall in love with. We cannot choose what we are interested to write about. We cannot choose our muse. And quitting was the muse that called Evan Harris. She had written other things before Quitter Quarterly, but back then the ideas came out in a trickle. When she wrote about quitting, it was like this inexhaustible fountain. It was standing in front
1: of a fire hydrant immense force, full blast coming out her. It really it really came all at once. I mean, I really sat down to start writing about it and it really it 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 came out and it seemed to have already been formed.
0: And the way that Evan Harris and Shelley Ross write about quitting is so evocative and funny that after just two issues of this tiny little zine, Quitter Quarterly was excerpted in Harper's Magazine. And it was named Zine of the Month by Sassy Magazine, which, you know, covers your kind of highbrow to lowbrow scale. Soon, a publisher had Evan writing a book, which is going to be out this coming May, called The Quit. And all this was happening because Evan Harris and Shelley Ross were not just writing about quitting. They were inventing an entire philosophy of quitting, a theory of quitting. Quit accordingly is like a scientific inquiry into the properties of quitting. For example, the euphoria of the quit.
1: The euphoria of the quit. Quitting euphoria is an incredible thing. I don't know. I don't know how much you have quit, but there is there is a an incredible charge to quitting that is um, like a drug. It's it's like being in love, kind of, you know, except it's being in love with your decision.
0: Evan Harris was writing about quitting and thinking about quitting and gathering the strength to quit her job and her boyfriend and her city, which, by the way, she did. And at some point in this entire process, her view of the world began to change. Quits and potential quits seemed to be everywhere. She would go out with a friend for coffee and, of course, talk about all this quitting business that she was thinking about all the time. And then this friend, no matter who it was, would come out with some story about something that he or she wanted to quit. Quitting started to seem like the engine that made everything in the world go round.
1: The way I see it in thinking about my own life, I see it as being framed and and the narrative of it being pushed along by quitting, by quits. Um, So that my first big quit was to leave the college that I was going to, and I moved to New York City. And then my next big quit was to quit the graduate program that I was in, and and then I fell into this job. Um, And so now I have quit my entire—I I have nothing left to quit. I mean, I've quit my—I've quit my boyfriend. I've quit my city. I've quit my job, um, and I—and I have nothing left to quit. And so, really, now there's nothing to do but build things up again. Um, do you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, but you say that as if you're just building them up for what will be the central fact of your life, which is then you're going to quit them. Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. The way I see it is that there's sort of like two basic, big, important concepts, okay? And the first one is that nothing lasts forever. You know, you cannot, there is nothing that you can do that you can keep on doing forever. Nothing. That's it. Period. End of story. Um, and then the other big one is that you have to be doing something. Um, so my feeling is better to, to willfully quit whatever it is um, and then go on to the next thing that you have to be doing, because you have to be doing something, um, than to just kind of let things fall apart. The quitting cycle. In everybody's life, there is some something of a quitting cycle. So you can talk about, you know, adolescence being a time where people start, you know, Quit listening to their parents, and then maybe, maybe in people's um, mid to late twenties, they start quitting places or even quitting people. And then later on in midlife, I think that there's there's a little bit of a of a quitting thing going on, um, which some people call midlife crisis, and I would probably call it the midlife quit. You know, and then in in older for older adults, um, I think that they they do quite a bit of quitting too. I think that they you know basically quit giving a damn what people think of them um, and quit worrying about certain things there's the, the, the quitting cycle and then there's the sort of nature of quitters um, which I think is is important, I don't I don't think quitters are lazy people um, necessarily. I mean, some quitters are probably lazy, um, but I don't think I don't think that the essential nature of a quitter is to be lazy. I think that the essential nature of a quitter is to be able to cut their losses and move on. Quitting is about being willful. Quitting is about having one's own volition to do whatever. To, to reflect yeah. on
0: why it is that you think uh, the word quitter has such a pejorative connotation in our culture oh because yeah. I, because I think of the last time I saw the word quitter mm-hmm. and it was a cover of a magazine mm-hmm. with Ross Perot on mm-hmm. it when he pulled out of the presidential race right. and the word quitter mm-hmm. was above him that just uh-huh. the notion of being a quitter right. was so shameful that was right. the message of it
1: right the word quitter does have a negative connotation um, and that's something that I would, I would really like to change. I mean, I would really like, I would really like to kidnap that word. Um, I see quitters as people who have volition. Uh, uh, Quitters never win and winners never quit. And that's completely untrue. I mean, really, the more things you quit, the more things you're going to do. And the more things you do, the more potential you have for success. I mean, I would say the quitter quarterly as a thing is definitely pro-quitting propaganda. I mean, absolutely. But I'm not so much describing, well, maybe I'm describing a little bit what quits feel like. Um, But I'm much more interested in the anatomy of quitting. Um, I would say that the anatomy of an actual quit would vary. But the general form of a quit would be that the quitter thinks about it. The quitter thinks about it some more. The quitter quits, and then there's the post-quitting stuff.
0: I'm just going to stop that right there. I, I, are you following this, <laughs> this particular point? But let's, let's review those steps again, OK? The anatomy of a quit. The quitter thinks about it. Step two now. The quitter thinks about it some more. To me, this indicates somebody who actually has been in that position. You do actually, you don't just think about it. It goes on for a really long, long time before you actually then do the quit.
1: Let's let's review. That the quitter thinks about it, the quitter thinks about it some more, the quitter quits, and then there's the post-quitting stuff.
0: Now, you know, we have all met in our lives people who have come to see the world through a single idea people for whom all interaction can be explained by some scheme, you know. And it can be a big idea. You know, it could, be, it could be the laws of supply and demand or fundamentalist Christianity or structuralist linguistic theory. Or it could be a small idea, you know, the need for everybody to do aerobic exercise on a regular basis or the danger of fluoridation or CIA conspiracies dating back to the Bay of Pigs. Who amongst us has not had A conversation on a train or a plane or at a party or an in-law's house where some earnest-faced person full of evidence and theory expounds at length on an idea like, if everyone on the earth would just stand on his or her head for an hour a day, there would be world peace. And if you talk to Evan Harris for a while, She'll tell you about the great quits which have driven world history, how, in fact, all the wars and strife of the millennia are, in fact, better understood as a series of quits. And as some people will do when they become obsessed with a single topic, she sometimes delves into quitting issues that are so esoteric, so erudite, that that it would be hard, I think, for anyone else to not just understand them, but to care about them, you know? For example, she was trying to figure out a system for how to rate the importance of various types of quits. She, she had actually created a, a mathematical model to do that, that that she was working on. And, and during her interview, she repeated several times that quitting had a life of its own, you know, a life... Separate from any of the quits that you might make, or I might make, or other people make, in, in her mind it seemed that quitting—it was almost like a living thing, separate from the actions of human beings.
1: Quitting itself has an identity, um, and and y- your particular quit, one quitter's particular quit, fits fits in to the world and all of the other quitters in the world, you know, um, and. You have to remember that your quit is going to influence another person's quit potentially. Um, the point, the point of quitting is to, is to move in the world and and to and to get bigger and bigger as as a as a person. See, I'm God damn. I sometimes I just. Um start to sound like a nut, basically, about this. I mean, I, you know, I just, what am I talking about? You know, what am I talking about? i You have to understand, this is so on my mind. You know, I mean, I think about this all the time. I think about this all the time. I'm, th- I'm thinking about getting up and walking out of this room right now. You know, I really am. Quitting is not just about how it feels to yourself. No, I don't think that that's true. I, I, I do not, I don't think that that's true. And I think that people have to see themselves in a swim that way, you
0: know? In a swim of quitting?
1: In a swim of quitting.
0: In a swim of quitting with other swimmers, with other people who are quitting? Right. I mean, I have to—I yep. have to say that—that that, I mean, you're saying people should be aware of themselves as being part of a, a world of quitting and, oh. and, a, and a world of people who are quitting and a whole idea of the notion of quitting. But I have to say, in all of my life, you are the only person who I've ever met who thinks of it that way.
1: Oh, but you're so wrong about that. Oh well, maybe you're not wrong. I, am I really the only person you've ever met who who thinks of quitting in this way?
0: You yourself said you didn't start to think about quitting in this way before February,
1: right? But that, but just because I didn't start to think about it before February doesn't mean that that no one else has ever thought of it before.
0: I wonder how long, uh, how long you're going to um, feel this way, how long uh, you're going to be
1: disinterested in quitting. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long I'll be interested in quitting. I think maybe what you're suggesting is that is that I'll get it out of my system and I'll be over it and it'll be done. But but as I said before, um I have quit everything. I I don't in a very literal way have a have anything to quit anymore. I have no city. I have no boyfriend. I have no home. Um Not that those are the only things in life. I mean, you know, I suppose I could quit smoking or, you know, quit eating things that are bad for me. Or, there's, you know, there's a lot of little quits that I could execute, um, which I might do just to tide me over, you know. But the thing about quitting is that it it runs on a cycle so that now or soon, not quite yet, but soon I'll be building more things up, um, which I will quit, which I will quit,
2: you know. Sure. Yes, I am sure.
0: Evan Harris, if you would like a copy of Quarter Quarterly, get a pencil. It's P.O. Box 20515. Thompson Square Station, sorry, Tompkins Square Station, New York, New York, 10009. Again, quarter quarterly, PO Box 20515, Tompkins Square Station, New York, New York, 10009. Copy is 25 cents plus the cost of one thin American stamp. Well, coming up in a minute, all the dogs in a suburban Los Angeles neighborhood quit their dull suburban lives. Stay with us.
3: Again in town Was sitting by his sweetheart's side And when his sweetheart said Come on, let's settle down Wildcat raised his head and cried Oh, give me land Lots of land under starry skies above Don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever but I ask you please Don't fence me in Just turn me loose Let me straddle my old saddle Underneath the western skies my cause Let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences. Gaze at the moon.
2: This is Sandrit Singh Lowe in Los Angeles, sitting at the piano. And this is a story about quitting. Right now, it is at that moment of the day, that sour late afternoon moment, when the orangey rays of the fading afternoon sun slant across patches of, well, not exactly lawn, but a kind of leathery Bermuda clover that springs up in the West Valley after the rain. And a dog realizes that his world is not a swirling universe of endless possibility, of good and evil, of constantly banging up against the portals of Blakian excess. But it is a 10 by 15 foot yard with a locked gate at the end. And your kibble isn't even the good kibble. It's the Lady Lee bargain kibble. And the only reason to get up in the morning is to chase a blue rubber ball with a bell in it and life seems as drab and dry as dust. At least, so it seems today to two particular dogs. Joey, a large, silver-haired Australian Shepherd with no tail but a wagging skirt, and his companion, Flipper, of a German Shepherd-Terrier mix, which makes him small and yappy. But then, at that moment, Joey and Flipper hear this magical call. Rusty and Boots, the neighborhood dog sentinels Excitedly, they are barking out a message There's something going on in the alley There's something going on in the alley One by one, each other dog in the neighborhood Ginger and Patches and Blueberry and Joey and Flipper Bolt to their back gates Trying to press their moist noses through the wooden slats To see what's going on As they raise their voices in a joyous canine cacophony The most famous dog of all time Buck the Husky from Jack London's Call of the Wild He stands effortlessly on his hind legs His ruff is beautifully fluffed And in kind of a debonair Howard Keel type way He sings in shimmering tenor Come you dogs Come you joggies Come you dogs Come to Canada Canada, big mountains, big valley, big sky, big water. It's Marlborough country. Joey and Flipper can almost hear the National Geographic theme playing. Pa it is the sound of 2,000 Maasai warriors hurtling across the desert with their spears pointing of the mysterious curve of the horn of the wildebeest and of the water buffalo of the veiled gaze of a red nostrilled mandrel monkey. It is so exciting that one by one the dogs overleap their back gates, which used to be impossible, but now it seems ridiculously easy. There goes Ginger. And patches and blueberry and rusty and boots and flipper. Come, you dogs, come, you doggies, come, you dogs, come on. And Joey! And Joey! And Joey who with this humiliating moment cannot quite get his lardy overweight body stuffed full of too many Cheetos and Doritos quite over that back gate. Buck has to athletically leap behind and push against his big behind as though it were one of Yul Brynner's obelisks in the Ten Commandments. Joey's over and his skirt lifts out behind him like a magic cape and he and the other dogs are sailing flying over the San Fernando Valley for the first time they look down at the humming suburban grid that was outside that back gate the whole time. The slowly revolving orange and yellow sign of the Canoga Park Motorin Canoga Park Bowl Canoga Park Park Motorin Canoga Park Bowl Canoga and the Yoshinoya beef bowl and the Winnetka Five drive-in movie theater, which is playing Nightmare on Elm Street, part five, again, and Roscoe and Satekoy, those harsh West Valley speedways over which grimy King Auto Bear shops lower, and the yellow ranch doll houses with their balding lawns whose occupants keep using the drought as an excuse for letting everything go to pot occupants who eke out their sad daily lives of quiet desperation, prisoners of the People magazine demographics which enslave them, their favorite TV shows being blank ciphers like Full House, and Empty nest and never in the history of Western civilization is that. That seems quite so empty as it does today. But to the dogs, the suburban grid is the most fascinating thing they've ever seen. But you think that's amazing, says Buck. Wait till you are skimming with me over the ice flows of the arctic tundra and all around you snowy mountain peaks are rising like a cathedral. Spires and the air is clean, zestfully clean, clear and manly and good. And with that, as if in a Spielberg film, the dogs sail away from it all over the Angela's Crest Mountains, disappearing in a burst of a magical star shower. Falling, adventure calling. Night is falling, adventure calling.
4: Different. Disappear Do something different Disappear. Think like a child Laugh at cocaine Never ever ever do What's proper again Understand everyone Crystal clear Rid yourself of fashion Disappear. Remove yourself from fashion
0: and more coming up is your radio playhouse. It is your radio playhouse, Amira Glass. All right, let's review the stages of quitting, according to Ms. Evan Harris, editor, co-writer of Quitter Quarterly. The stages of quitting, you think about it, you think about it some more, then maybe you quit. Maybe you feel that quitting euphoria, you know, as you soar over the suburbs with your doggy friends towards Canada. But I think that it is just as likely that you do not quit. I think it's just as likely that you stay suspended in a kind of long term pre quitting confusion for weeks and months. When is it time to quit? When is enough enough?
4: Go ahead. If you, you try to touch me, I will kill you in a minute. In a minute! Not one minute. Thirty seconds.
0: If there um ever was a couple that seemed like it should quit its relationship, I would say that this one would pretty much qualify. This is um Ray, the voice you just heard, and uh, he lived for years with a guy named Peter. And um, these are real people... And this comes from a very unusual CD that I have here called Shut Up, Little Man. It's it's called that because one of them is always saying to the other one, shut up, little man. And the recordings were made by the neighbors, the next door neighbors of these two guys, um, the, the next door neighbors of Raymond and Peter. This, uh, this all happened in San Francisco in the late 1980s. And um, as they say in the liner notes, the, the apartment building that this took place in was built like a cheap motel and had very thin walls in them. I'm just going to read this. Within a week of arrival, this is the neighbor's writing, within a week of arrival, we were exposed to what would become a dependable routine from our next-door neighbors. Evenings charged with belligerent rants, hateful harangues, drunken soliloquies, death threats, and the sound of wrestling bodies thumping against the wall that separated our apartments. They fought with a raging abandon and total disregard for everyone in the building. The, the two guys, the neighbors uh, who moved in, Eddie Lee Sausage and Mitchell D. are their names, they started taping Raymond and Peter. And at first they just did this because they really thought that at some point somebody might try to kill somebody else and they thought it would be important to have real evidence. Uh, Again, they say in the liner notes, the first crudely recorded session featured a monologue by Ray muttering to himself about his desire to kill. There was something so nakedly sinister about the recording that we were shocked, mystified. At the same time, it instilled in us a hunger for more. So these two guys, uh, names of Eddie Lee Sausage and Mitchell D, um, who made these recordings, say that they actually never figured out if Raymond and Peter were a gay couple or if they were just, you know, straight roommates. It is clear that homosexuality is on the minds of Raymond and Peter a lot, a whole lot, a, an unusual amount of time on the CD to, to rants about how much they hate gays. Uh, Raymond and Peter, that is. They they, they they rant about this so much that you really begin to wonder, what is this obsession about? What what it is about? <laughs> you know, you just, you, you get that kind of me thinks the lady protests too much sort of feeling very early on. But I digress. I bring it here onto this, our Radio Playhouse radio program today, because, um... It includes warning signs about when it is time to quit a relationship, I think. The thing about this couple is that they get into a kind of fight that only very well-established couples or roommates or people who work together get into. And that is, it's it's a fight which begins with the smallest fact of daily life. They literally actually get into a fight about cutting their toenails. And and then suddenly, everything is riding on cutting their toenails. Everybody's pride, everybody's self-image, everything is on the table. With this life-or-death ferocity... When you find yourself in that situation, it's time to start thinking about maybe I should quit this relationship.
4: I didn't see you trying to cut your toenails. I don't want to see you cut your toenails, so why would I worry about it? For God's sake, shut up, little man. I don't want to watch you cut your toenails. Like to have eaten tonight, also, but I can't because of you talking about toenails. You know we've been trying to watch this TV show. Can't we watch it? Why should you watch this? You f-ing piece of pieces. All you are is a f***ing queer mother. And you want to watch queer? F-ing. I don't want to watch that. F-ing. Don't do that. Do not do that. What are you watching? Don't it? do, queer, not do that. Queer we're watching, we're watching Wheel of Fortune. Justice You're watching the fing queer mother I don't want to really watch queer mother I want to watch something decent, like Sorry. That. Go somewhere else and watch it then. Don't touch me. Don't you touch me? You were the one that put your hands on me. Don't do that. Get that out. Get your hands on me. You. F***ing. You go sit down. You better get your hands on me. When you f***ing get your hands off you. that toaster. You go to hell. In. you smell like a f***ing dog. You are a dog. I took a bath today. You ain't took a bath in three days. You just stop it. You're a stinking f***ing piece of s***. Dirty man. Go bed.
5: <laughs> no, they don't. Go giggle! Giggle all your way.
4: Giggle! Giggle, dirty little man! You always giggle falsely. You don't have a decent giggle in you. I am a decent... Shut up, man. I'm a decent... Shut up, little man. You are
0: not. Why don't these guys quit each other? I think part of it, and I actually think one of the most striking things about these recordings is, is the intimacy of these arguments. Arguing can be one of the most intimate things that people can do together. It's this, it's this mutually shared moment. I'm, I'm going to put you uh, one more cut that, that really illustrates this in a kind of, I don't know if chilling is, is the right word, but it's, it's disturbing. In the middle of a big argument, um, one of them, Is is so inside the other one's head and and knows so much about him that at one point to to humiliate him, he starts to call him women's names.
4: Try it. Try it, Mabel. Okay, Mabel. I don't attack. I don't attack, Mabel. Okay. Okay, Mabel. Try. You ain't never try Mabel. Try, Mabel. You try attacking, I'll kill you. Try Alice. Don't tell me Alice. All right, why do you think of Mabel? You try. Don't touch that. Man. You try and you're going to be down. I'm not going to touch you. Well, I am waiting for I'm you. I'm staying lady. here. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool, little man. I've showed you that. Okay, yeah. You okay, must've... Alice. Okay, Julie, go back in there. I have already proved that I'm. No, you haven't proven anything, Sally. Sally June, Abigail May, this is just too much. You can't take nobody. You're a sick little man. I'm healthy. You're a sick little man that is dying from the same thing your brother died. From.
0: The utter cruelty of that last comment is is just um breathtaking. They, they do talk about leaving each other on the CD, but they, but they never do leave each other. Um, as Evan Harris says, the stages of quitting, okay, you think about it, you think about it some more. Sometimes you quit, and in their case, you just keep thinking about it some more. Well, we, um, we invited Lisa Buscani to come into our radio playhouse and uh, write a piece about not being able to quit something or, or someone. Lisa is a uh, Chicago poet, and this is kind of, um, it's more of a prose piece than a poem. It's, a, it's a kind of a prose piece with um, poetic tendencies. It's got a couple of sections, and, uh, and here is the first.
6: Part one, work. The morning began with weight. My head, stoned down to an unbearably heavy burden, pinned to the narcotic pillow. My eyes, like their lids, shut. Blindness would hinder my motion. My arms and legs remembered the heavy metal burned into their sense memory and refused me the grace I needed to get through the day. My body's refusal to function was in the name of survival. If I moved, that meant I would get up. If I got up, I would probably take a shower and get dressed. If I did that, I would go to work. To unspeakable unthinkable horror. Now don't get me wrong, I have nothing against work, per se. The concept of joining shoulder to shoulder with efficient, enthusiastic co-workers, discovering problems, crafting solutions, pushing onward, always onward, via honest sweat of brow, is attractive to me. I think of well-constructed women in business suits, the ones who really know how to tie a scarf, dashing through airports to catch that last flight to Rome, handling a potential empire-crashing crisis and spending an exhausted yet satisfied overnight in the company pensione. I think of post office murals and 1950s communist propaganda, strong, textured, geometric men in the stoic blue of the overall in the work shirt reverently folding open the land, courageously braving the hell of the forge, lifting their ruddy cheeks and angular chins to God or government simply, deeply thankful for their job. That was work to me. Not the salaried conflagration I went to every day. I worked at a small trade journal in the suburbs where I handled various layout and writing tasks. It was a tiny firm a mom-and-pop organization, if you will, starring Leona Helmsley as mom. The publisher was a shrunken, shrewish woman in her fifties, the kind of woman who thought the word broad was a badge of honor. She fancied herself the last of the old Chicago Newsies, barking her wisdom from her stuffy, windowless office, her cover stick sweating off the gin blossoms in her nose, one of an endless supply of beige-stained Virginia Slims dangling from her lipless mouth. Armada was this. Yell, yell, and yell some more. If they're there the next morning, you've lost your touch. It was as if Satan had made a foray into human resources. She stood over my shoulder constantly, criticizing my work with raptorial fervor, waiting like a blood-mouthed hyena for the moment when I tripped up and made an error. And when I did screw up, as employees inevitably do when told they can do nothing else... She was all over me like drone bees to the queen. I was not capable of being right. The presumption that I could be right, that I could even have an opinion, infuriated her. Any argument I sputtered in my defense was dissected, mocked, and negated. After all, how can one question the wisdom of a woman who cornered the floral industry tabloid market? It was better to tip my neck open and let her drink As horrible as it was, I couldn't just leave. she paid me $12,000 a year. Even with a second job on weekends, I barely got by. I rarely went out anywhere. I felt like restaurants were meant for other people. The world seemed to narrow to the places where I could and could not go. My friends nicknamed me Florence Nightingale. No one could nurse a drink like I could. I bought the cheapest food possible, the cheapest clothes available, and forgot about cutting my hair. My thought process was consistently reduced to the bottom line. Basically, the job taught me one thing. How to live a life with little or no option. And after a while, I was incapable of imagining myself in any other circumstance. Forget about my college degree and all the experience I obtained. This was how it was and always would be. If I thought about it too much, it became hard to breathe. The breaking came when review time rolled around, two months later than she said it would when she hired me. She told me she wasn't going to give me a raise. Raises were given on merit in her office, she said. My work did not merit a raise. The room was suddenly very literally light. It was almost too bright in the room to look at her without wincing. I could hear the hum of the office lamps. I was amazed at my calm. I stood, walked to my desk, took my office keys off the chain, and walked out the door. I did not know what I was going to do, and blessedly, I did not care. I sat quietly on the train back to the city, feeling my back muscles slowly unravel and my stomach lift six inches into my heart. The warmth started in my cheeks and spread down to my fingers, down to my feet. My lungs expanded completely, which hurt a bit. It felt like I'd been swimming all day and had forgotten to breathe. I didn't mind the pain. Peace is a fine traveling companion.
0: Lisa Buscani. more from her in a minute. But first, this song from Robert Metrick, first performed in Chicago's Club Lower Links. You're listening to Your Radio Playhouse.
4: I was once an animal until I learned the calendar, so now I am a At your earliest convenience, you say, See you in your office where you show me what is good for me. God has not forgotten me. My God has not forsaken me. Perhaps my God is merely trying not to reawaken me. Part 2
6: Love. When we started he and I, I was thin. My face was a diamond, all clean walls. Nothing held me back, not my clothes, not my lack of money. I was weightless, but I had control, like astronauts after they learned to swim properly in space. Our conversations used to overlap and dovetail and interweave and occasionally we'd stop to breathe. Great pictures of limitless futures, expansive and unfettered. That's how we talked it. I tried to break my visions down to see how to make them happen, and he just made his bigger. Which is one way of doing it, I guess. When we made love, we knew how to forget ourselves. That, I'm convinced, is passion. To kiss Him so hard and hold him so hard that the act itself is forgotten and all that is remembered is skin and hair and warmth. That's a gift. That's something we kept for a long, long time. The decline was relatively slow. Every time we fought, I took the opportunity to shift the relationship from one shoulder to another, just to give myself a break and better balance and we'd start again. I had carried us a long time. He could say that too, I suppose. I started gaining weight, and that seemed to be the theme of it. It became harder and harder to get down to the bone. The way we were put together began to escape me. When we made love, we suddenly knew exactly where we were and what was going on. It was one of those great sadnesses that you carry in your throat. I couldn't quit it because this was once so easy. On the morning of the first night he stayed with me, I woke up and looked at him and found home. I could fold myself into him, into the warmth found in those deco corners. I couldn't quit it because I had been alone much of my life. To be alone again meant an energy my aging had confiscated. And even though I was still alone with him, a future was the crumb of consolation. I couldn't quit it because it didn't fit the only picture I had. My parents knew the necessary work of love. They were the model here. If they could work dogged for their heart, so could I, I thought. I couldn't quit it because of winter. I can't stand to sleep alone in the cold. The end happened several times, actually. We would inevitably hook up again and mess around. We just didn't look in each other's eyes, is all. One night, we were eating dinner, and his smile was less than honest, and I thought, well, then this is it. I said, I've been working far too hard for far too long, and he agreed. And I wanted him to fight it, and was disappointed by how light he was, smiling, so ready to fly. I felt light too, but it was the way you are before you catch a cold, all unfocused and buzzing, and the chill comes from inside.
0: Lisa Buscani Dwight Okita has this poem about quitting from his book Crossing with the Light. He wrote it back when he worked as a dance instructor.
7: It's about a student he became friends with. Somewhere in Chicago, a woman unplugs a toaster from a wall, and suddenly her apartment is empty. She wraps the cord, jump rope style, into a bow, lowers the appliance into a box, marked kitchen things, and tapes it shut. All day, boxes move past her, a brown blur against the white walls. How many men does it take to lift a woman's spirits? Make your arms like a barrel, I scolded, your dance instructor, fox-trotting you around the room. Women are always walking backwards, aren't they, you said, looking at your feet, and I spun you. No, just going in circles, and here we laughed. In the mirrors of the dance studio we laughed, and I saw us, lost in the funhouse again. I want it always to be fun. Now everything is loaded on the truck. She sits behind the wheel of something larger than her. I'm going to Timbuktu and I'm taking my time, she says, her hands on the wheel. Peaches, pears, apples, plums. Tell me when your birthday comes. And I wave to her from the curb. It paints a sad picture, this woman in van pulling out of a driveway, no longer hers. And for her, I do a farewell samba on the lawn, alone, taking the darkness in the crescent of my arms, leading it in a dance I'm just beginning to learn.
0: The Farewell Samba by Dwight Okita. And we're going to close our broadcast today with um, a piece by the late Philip Larkin, which seems perfect as you contemplate upcoming quits over the course of the next week, or not quitting anything. (laughs) Maybe that's what you've gotten out of this particular program. Anyway, this is called Poetry of Departures. Sometimes you hear, fifth hand, as epitaph, he chucked up everything and just cleared off. And always the voice will sound certain you approve, this audacious, purifying, elemental move. And they're right, I think. We all hate home and having to be there. I detest my room. It's specially chosen junk, the good books, the good bed, and my life in perfect order. So to hear it said, he walked out on the whole crowd, leaves me flushed and stirred, like, then he undid her dress, or take that, you bastard. Surely I can if he did, and that helps me stay sober and industrious. But I'd go today. Yes, swagger the nut, strewn roads, crouch in the foxhole, stubby with goodness. If it weren't so artificial, such a deliberate step backwards to create an object, books, China, a life, reprehensibly perfect. Well, funding for this program has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the members of WBEZ Chicago. Today's program was produced by Dolores Wilbur, Peter Clowney, Nancy Updike, and Elise Spiegel. Contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Paul Tuff. WBEZ station manager is Tori Malatia. Special thanks tonight to Anahid Alani for the Philip Larkin poem, to Lawrence Steger for the Shut Up Little Man CD, also Steve Cushing, Fawn Williams, James Owens at Experimental Sound Studio, and Bob Carlson at KCRW, who recorded Sandra Low at the piano. We broadcast from WBEZ Chicago. And as you go about your week this week, and you consider whether to quit smoking or quit eating those cheese fries or quit
1: whatever, Don't you forget. There's there's so many famous quits. There's so many quits that have driven world history.
0: I'm Ira Glass. See you next week with more stories of This American Life.